those gestural qualities that printed page strips from language come back in the dark. And on the radio. Hello and welcome to The Massage, a series of conversations on culture and technology. I'm Andrew McLuhan, director of the McLuhan Institute. Today, we're speaking with James Cortides of somewhere in Florida. Uh, welcome, James. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you uh, so much for having me on. Looking well, forward this to is, it. This is great. It was a pleasure for me to speak with you on your podcast. So now we can speak together on my podcast. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it very much and, and had some good feedback. And it took some yeah. uh, interesting twists and turns, which... I appreciate it very much and still do. Well, that's what I love about it. And that's why um, I'm really, a, you know, a fan of my own podcast uh, because <laughs> I love conversations more than interrogations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, James, where are you in Florida? I am in Trinity, Florida, which is uh, a little outside. Uh, it's a suburb outside of Tampa. Okay. Yeah. Trinity, that seems apt. Yeah, I know, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it's a nice little, uh, nice little area. I mean, it was born and raised uh, essentially in this area, uh, maybe 30 minutes towards the coast. So, um, you know, been in Florida quite a long time. Cool. I've been to Florida a couple times and I love it. I've always been attracted to Florida, actually. I've, um, I don't read as much anymore, but I've read a lot of fiction and especially detective fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm a big fan of Florida writers. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I find that, um, there, there are these various schools and they may not be intentional, but they end up being a thing. And, you know, the, the Norwegian, the Icelandic writers have a, a very kind of down, thoughtful, spare, noir vibe um, mm -hmm. against, say, the New York or the West Coast. And Florida writers have a lot of quirk to them. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking of Tim Dorsey and James Elroy uh, and people like that. So I've always had a, a thing for Florida and I love, I love its weirdness. Yes, it is. It's definitely strange. It's like a microcosm of the country as a whole, almost, um, you know, especially during kind of political season. Uh -huh. um, but I, I wonder what effect the environment has, like the landscape, uh, like of these uh, towns and nations and states on the way people write you know, and the mood that they express. Yeah. yeah it's it's, it's, very, it's very much a thing. Um, and something I enjoy looking at too. I, I tend to get into series. So when I find an author I like, um, I tend to track down, you know, the whole series. And when it comes to detective fiction, it's heavily series based. So the first author I really got into in Florida was John D. MacDonald, mm -hmm. um, who's well known for his Travis McGee series. Um, and he's not the weirdest. Actually, the weird doesn't really figure in so much. Have you heard of Tim? Do you know who Tim Dorsey is? I do not. Tim Dorsey um, has a series of books featuring these characters, Serge and uh, Coleman. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of oddball vigilantes. Um, and they they help people out. And they, they find creative... Um, almost depraved solutions to their problems uh, hmm. and get people out of sticky situations. And it's just, it is very, very strange. 
Hmm. Um, uh, if you're into that at all, I, I highly recommend them. But um, what? Well, last time we spoke, you yeah. uh, you turned me on to poetry, and I've been you know writing poetry, and now you're t- you're turning me on to uh, you know, <laughs> detective fiction, and I I've never heard of these writers, but I just wrote them down. Oh and no! I feel like I'm going to be following up with you and, and get into a nice, beautiful rabbit hole. Oh, I love that. Um, and uh, it's so gratifying. Uh, I've been following your poetic um, turn, actually, and it's been really, really nice to see. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I don't post, I, I don't like most of what I write, like to share. Yeah. And I, I, I shared some and I'm like, you know, as I, I don't know what I'm uh, kind of doing, you know, I, I guess that's normal. It is normal. Um, it's yeah. how we, we learn by experimenting. Yeah. Um, and I know for myself, I look at I look back at stuff I wrote ten years ago, and it's like, oh man, right? Um, but I was proud of it at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's it's difficult now because uh, of COVID, obviously. But um, I used to go to a lot of um, well, back before I had family and things to do, uh, I used to go a lot of poetry readings and open mics and read read my things because uh, I enjoy the the performative side mm-hmm. of things. I'm not sure. Well, there's Clubhouse. Clubhouse seems to be an interesting place to maybe read poetry. I've done that a few times. Are um, you on Clubhouse? Oh, yeah. yeah. I have, I have yet to um, use it. Uh, I don't think they have an Android app. And I just, uh, I think it's interesting from the outside looking yeah. in, but um, I'm interested to check it out sometime. It's interesting. Um, it, yeah, they don't have an Android app, so it's it's iPhone, so it's kind of elitist, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it is very interesting. It's a huge time suck. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can spend you could spend your whole day because there's always it's um, you know it's organized eavesdropping kind of, mm. uh, yeah. <laughs> and people there. I've always been able to find an interesting conversation. Um, so the FOMO is, is, is heavy, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, at the same time, um, you know, I have better things to do. So I'm trying to, to not get too into it because the last thing I need is another social media habit. Right. Tell me about it. And right. I, the people that I follow, Eric Weinstein and Brett Weinstein, his brother, I think they either heavily invested or helped start the platform. Um, so I'm, I really like Eric and Brett actually, uh, Brett okay. is the, you know, are you familiar with them? I'm not. Brett is the, um, he's an evolutionary psychologist who had the incident, an episode that happened at Evergreen college in Oregon, um, where there was a uh, protest and then he was fired. Uh, and his brother's Eric Weinstein, who's like a, a very well, um, not well established cause he's kind of anti-establishment, uh, mathematical, uh, he's got a couple of interesting mathematical theories that he's come up with. Um, one is called uh, geometric unity. Um, f- fascinating guys. I-, I suggest kind of looking them up uh, if you ever get a chance. Uh, Brett's got a podcast called the, um, uh, what's it called? The Dark Horse Podcast. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Huh. How did you find out about them? Um, you know, I think it was through Jordan Peterson, really, kind of when he was uh, – coming up and was having an, an engagements and discussions. So Brett Weinstein moderated his kind of big discussion. I think it was either in Seattle or, or somewhere, maybe in Canada. Like a, I forgot exactly where it was, but okay. he had a debate with Sam Harris and it was moderated by uh, Brett Weinstein. And that's kind of what brought me to him. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so you're, you're interested in, uh, in Dr. Peterson. Yes. Yes. Very much. 
How, why? Um, you know, when I came up on him, uh, he wasn't really popular yet. I just, he was just kind of coming into the fold and he came into the fold with the uh, whole, his whole opposal to the uh, bill C-16 in Canada, which he yeah. saw as enforcing, uh, as the government enforcing a type of speech. And that caused a bunch of controversy, but I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in his, his lectures and he had hundreds, if not thousands of hours of his classes on YouTube. Um, and I've, I've, I've probably watched almost literally every video he's put up. And uh, when, he, when it got to the biblical series, he did a 12 part series on the psychological significance of the Bible. Uh, and that had a, an, an, an intense impact on me and actually reoriented me back to my, you know, my faith, my family's faith. Uh, so it made me look at what I thought were antiquated, archaic, um, inconsequential, maybe that's not the right word, you know, ideas, because uh -huh. I've seen them through the prism of, you know, culture. Uh, it made me look at them with fresh eyes. And it uh, literally had a it had a metanoia, a change of heart, which I'm still processing, actually. Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. I, I've wondered about about uh, those things with you because I understood that you're recently coming back into into the church. And I think you and I come from similar backgrounds in that, um, you know, I come from a Catholic family and mm -hmm. it's something that, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people of, of our generation, it's natural to, uh, you know, rebel against might be too strong a word. Uh, for something that was maybe less intentional, uh, but fall away from anyway, uh, the things that were, were raised in. Um, but I've found that a lot of people are, are, are looking or coming back to with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, I think there's a retrieval happening. And I yeah. think it's partly to do with the, kind of the logos and the acoustic space you know, uh, it's kind of being retrieved uh, with, you know, like how your grandfather and, and your father and you talk about the, uh, you know, the electric age and, and the consequences therein. Um, so just quickly, the, the, your Marshall uses the term acoustic space as opposed to visual. And anytime I bring that up, like initially, people are like, you know, does that just mean sound? And I was thinking, do you think holistic would be a, a comparable term to use instead of acoustic? Uh, instead of, I mean, it's, um, or to, or to help, uh, you know, to help ground the idea of acoustic space. Yeah. You could add holistic. Um, I mean, the main differences are that, um, visual space is just describing the space as, as experienced by the eye mm -hmm. versus acoustic space, which is meant to describe space as experienced by the ear. Mm -hmm. So with the eye, um, the eye sees uh, with the eye gives us perspective. So looking at one, you know, straight ahead um, mm -hmm. with a bit of the periphery thrown in um, the eye works by focusing on one thing and then another, and then another. So there's a sequence, there's a logic. Um, whereas the ear we hear from all directions at once. Um, so there's more of a simultaneous factor. So mm -hmm. holistic does work there because uh, the idea of holism is to look at, at a whole, not just parts. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about visual space, you're, you're talking about fragmentary. When you're talking about acoustic space, you're talking about holistic. Mm -hmm. 
I think, I think it's in, it just just came up for me. So the, the idea of uh, the church and the idea of uh, uh, you go going to church or Christianity uh, in, in terms of the visual effects of the defragmentation that you've seen. You know, there was a study that came out. I think there's over forty five thousand denominations of Christianity. Wow! So you're seeing this kind of hardcore defragmentation and disintegration of the church. But if we're moving towards and we're in this kind of retrieval of this uh, holistic and acoustic uh, perceptual or way of seeing in the world, it kind of, I think, speaks to what you were saying, how a lot of people are looking back to, you know, kind of these uh, ideas that have been fragmented. Well, it would be very, very interesting to see if any of those pieces start to come back to um, the Catholic church or to Orthodox churches anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they are. Uh, just from the the circles and the parts of the internet that I, uh, you know, kind of frequent, there's a lot of atheists, anti-theists that didn't even have a tradition that they left that are finding um, solace in, in these kind of what, you know, in Christianity in a sense. And it's, it's very weird and interesting uh, to see happen, you know? Yeah. How does your, how does your family feel about, about this, this change with you? Um, that's, that's a good question. And it's something that is, is happening to us together as a family. Um, yeah. You know, we're not going to church regularly, but we've been trying just recently. We had, um, so about a year ago, had the um, Orthodox priest of the church that my family attended. I haven't been in 20 plus years. Yeah. I met with him and we were planning on, you know, maybe getting into the rhythm of going to church again. Um, but then COVID happened and, you know, things shut down. And literally a year later, I just had another conversation uh, with the, the priest, the father who came to the house. He blessed the house. He talked to my wife uh, who has a Catholic upbringing, uh, but still hasn't been to church. I don't think ever really went except when she was a little girl. Uh, but my son, my six-year-old is hyper interested in prayer, the Bible, uh, talking about the saints, praying. It, it, it's just intense. He's almost leading it. Um, through us and my wife is open. So we're kind of, uh, you know, probing, uh, you know, to, to use, uh, you know, a a word there, um, you know, this environment to see, I don't want to go back and force my family or even myself to go for superficial reasons. So I I just pray and ask for guidance that way. Oh, good. And and please, I I don't mean to pry into anything personal. So, so stop me if, uh, if it's getting too personal. No, um, no, I don't mind it at all. Oh, good. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting about children. I was I was very very into it when I was a kid. Um, I actually went to an all bo- a Catholic all boys school for grades seven and eight. Uh, and at that time, I figured I was going to be a priest. <laughs> mm. Wow. Um, so yeah, I was I was heavy into it. Uh, yeah. But then fell away, and I found myself. Um, you know, maybe it's a consequence of one of my parents dying, but I found myself with a renewed interest. And uh, before COVID, I'd started, I wasn't going to church every week or anything, but, um, you know, I tried to go once a month as mm-hmm. um, a way to get in touch with those things for myself. Also a way for me to honor my father, mm-hmm. because he was, he was so, he was the most, you know, outside of the priest the priesthood. He was the most religious person I know. Hmm. Um, his faith meant, meant a lot to him. 
Yeah. Uh, so I was going to church kind of to, to honor him and as a way to, to connect with him. And I knew it was something that would, uh, you know, make him happy. Not that that's a reason to do anything, but it's definitely yeah. something uh, I find myself more and more interested in. And if my wife if into this, it's okay. Don't, don't mm-hmm. freak out. <laughs> mm-hmm. My wife actually comes from a Baptist background. Mm-hmm. Um, her family are, are heavily involved in the Baptist church. And actually her brother is what they call a worship leader. He's mm. the band leader and studying to be a pastor. Um, and that's been an eye opener for me being raised Catholic to learn about uh, the Protestant traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very, very different kettle of fish. Yeah. Definitely. The, the Orthodox and the Catholic Church were, were one and the same until, you know, the schism in uh, a thousand years ago, actually, uh, I think it was 1050 AD, where there was, uh, you know, that schism that happened there. So they're very similar in structure and in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, one of the ideas that have brought me back is this idea of Christ is the head and we are the body of Christ by attending church, right? We participate in the body of Christ. We eat from his blood and his body. And, and the idea is to, to something that I've been thinking about, like it's if, if understanding media, media as the extensions of man, right? What is man? Right. You know, and the idea is that you can, you are part of a body that you can't op- apprehend or understand, right? And it's, are you a part of body, the body of Christ or are you part of the body of, you know, X in a sense. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's this idea like, uh, you know, what's happening when you're taking the Eucharist, when you're eating from the blood in the body of Christ, it's, oh, it's metaphorical or it's symbolic. Uh, it, I, it's something different that I don't understand, obviously, but. Well, this is, this is, as I understand it, the main difference between the Protestant and the Catholic or Orthodox is that in, in the Protestant tradition, the communion is metaphoric and in the mm-hmm. catholic tradition it's metaphysical mm-hmm. yeah. and that's the the thing that blows my mind is is that what happens during the mass the catholic mass is the priest is up there and um, they transform or you know act as the conduit between god transforming the bread and the wine into the, the literal, not metaphorical, but actual body and blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what Catholics believe happens up there. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, that's a heck of a thing. Yeah, it's, it's similar in, in the Orthodox. And um, the idea is, uh, how could we be becoming part or participating in the body of Christ by taking this blood and the wine? Well, we don't have a faint understanding of how when we eat a banana, it becomes part of our body, <laughs> right? We, we can chemically, you know, describe it, but, you know, we, and it's this idea, you know, at the beginning, God gathered the dust and, you know, breathed life into Adam and Eve, right? What are we doing? But gathering the dust, gathering the particles of the food that we eat, and they become part of our body. And it's a really metaphysical transformation that we, that has become kind of uh, mundane, to think about because of our, you know, hardcore scientism, scientific, logical thinking, you know? Yeah. And then what is happening when you're worshiping? Like when you're in, like in Orthodox, they have the liturgy, which is like the mass and you're singing and you're, you're singing hymns and you're participating with other human beings. In a sense, you're raising your heart up, your voice and your heart up to Christ. And you're, 
you're kind of being, you're participating in a real way in the body of Christ. And liturgy means the work of the people. That's the, the, the translation, uh, liturgia in Greek, right? The work of the people. Uh, and it's very, you know, interesting. And I, I, that's one of the big draws. And I want to participate in that. And it makes you part of a community. And I think that's something that people are really looking for is true community. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it as well. Um, but you are know, you are you a fluent uh, speaker of Greek, James? Uh, con- conversationally, um, you know, I used to go to Greece every every summer as a kid, and then every couple of years, and then uh, you know, just recently, last ten fifteen, you know, I've only gone a couple times. But when I get back there, I mean, in a, in a week or two, the language just comes back where I can speak pretty good. Really? Here I speak with my grandma every Greek and in, uh, in Greece every Saturday actually, and right. um, you know it, it comes back really easily. But I, I don't use it a lot. I've 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 noticed uh, because we're friends on Facebook. I've no, you've talked about your your weekly conversations with your grandmother in Greece, and that's such a, a wonderful thing. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you guys talk about? Yeah, it's, and it's a recent thing. I'd say in the last. Um, maybe six months. Well, really we talk every Saturday and, and she lives, you know, a family's from a, a village, a remote, not a remote, yeah, a remote village in, in North Greece, which is, uh, you know, about uh, an hour out of Thessaloniki. Uh, so it's yeah. like real village life. And it's wow. something that I really, really cherish the memories of being there. I have really meaningful relationships with, with friends there still. And it's just a different kind of lifestyle or, or just way of being there. Yeah. Um, but we talk about a lot of different things, you know, uh, we were t- a lot of, we're talking about orthodoxy and she really has, is a very devout orthodox, you know, Christian. And she uh, sees what's happened in our family. You know, it's like, we have a tradition of being orthodox for God knows how long. And my parents moved here from Greece in the late seventies. Right. And they yeah. were both working in the restaurant industry, you know, go figure Greek immigrants. Okay. Right owning restaurants and they didn't go to church. So I went with my grandma on my other side of my dad's family uh, when I was younger for a few years and then stopped. So it's like, there's been this cutoff, generational cutoff of being part of the church. And this return that I'm attempting or whatever's happening now has been in, in large part helped by our conversations talking about, you know, we're talking about what about baptizing the children uh, does it have to be a family member, you know, you know, cause that the idea is it's supposed to be someone that's really anchored in the Orthodox church that acts as a spiritual parent of the kids. Uh, yeah. and if, if should something should happen to the, to the children, you know, they take the role of, of, uh, of helping the children and they're supposed to be the pillar that brings them back to the faith as the machinations of life, you know, as a child, teenager, and then a young adult, you know, take a toll on, on, on the, um, the consciousness. Uh, they're supposed mm-hmm. to be kind of this, this anchor back. So we, we just talk about things like that. And, um, you know, I, I cherish it a lot, actually. Yeah. That's really special. Yeah. And, and what a different life. I know, um, just speaking for myself, living in, in rural setting, it's much different than, than living in the city, uh, and different, uh, different than living in Florida, in Trinity, Florida, or in, uh, in Greece, where, where your relatives live. It's interesting. Um, you know, a lot of the immigrant experience, um, people end up opening restaurants, Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it, it almost even gets 
cliche, you know, there's a Chinese restaurant here in the town nearby and there's a Greek restaurant too, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, did your parents ever try to steer you toward um, the restaurant business? Uh, no, they, um, they did not. They, my mom actually owns a restaurant in, uh, in Tarpon Springs. It's a uh, Greek community here in Florida. And um, now my dad and mom, the relationship struggled a lot working together, trying to build restaurants, ultimately led to their divorce. And, uh -huh. uh, you know, my dad said, I wouldn't wish the restaurant industry on my worst enemy. So yeah. uh, that, that kind of stuck with me. So, and it's a difficult slog to it is a business. Yeah. It's not, it's not easy. And there seems to be a bit of glamor to it, but it's, it's, uh, it's not glamorous on the, on the kitchen or the business side of things. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. And look what's happening now with, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, I think it is, you know, small business restaurants closing, yeah. uh, you know, it, restaurants and eating together, breaking bread together, right. Is, is a kind of a social bond, mm -hmm. something that keeps us cohesive. And for these things to be disintegrating, uh, is quite alarming to the pace and intensity of this disintegration of a, an institution of American life. It is. It's. It. You know, my heart goes out to to people who've whose livelihoods have been decimated by this. But um, you, you picked on something. Picked up on something very interesting, which is the cultural implications of this too. Um, you know, a year of uh, eating at home and. Uh, at best takeout from restaurants. Uh, you know, this idea of going on a date, uh, I mean, things are a little more open now than they were, you know, six months ago, but um, certainly huge cultural shifts. And, and what, does, what does this mean for the future, for the culture? Mm -hmm. And are those that are implementing these measures, considering these, um, considering these items that we're talking about here, like, you know, we're relying heavily on specialized virology, virologists, and uh, they have a very important role to play. But, you know, are they considering, are our politicians capable even anymore of considering uh, these second and third order effects that these measures have? And uh, it's, from my perspective, I have no faith that any solutions are coming from that level of, you know, influence. No, well, this is the nature of, of a pandemic, which is why, you know, I compared it a year ago when I wrote a piece on it to, to a world war, mm -hmm. um, because those are, are very, those are the kind of things we look, we look back on and talk about. They're not the kind of things we, we consider up front, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, I think other things uh, get in the way pretty easily. You mentioned, you mentioned something, though, Tarpon Springs. Mm -hmm. Are you into fishing? Uh, uh, yes. Yes. Well, I wondered because you posted a video recently of you in your backyard. It looked like playing football with your son. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have to say that was very impressive. Uh, <laughs> it looks like you're raising an NFL, a future NFL player, possibly. Yeah, it's funny, though. Um, I'm allergic to the idea of, of a father, you know, uh, pushing, uh, <laughs> you know, a sport or a, a job or whatever it is you yeah. know, on their child to like live their fantasy or whatnot. But he's like, he's pulling me, uh, you know, every day he trains. Uh, yeah. I come home from work and we have about a half hour before the sun goes down. And he says, dad, let's go, dad, let's go. I'm like, okay. And then I have to on Sunday tell him we have to stop because you have to <laughs> absorb, you have to absorb what you've learned and you've done this week. And he goes, okay. So we take Sundays off sometimes. 
That's that's great. And that's wonderful. Um, we're trying to encourage our kids. You know, I think that's our job as parents is to to encourage and try not to uh, to lead with your own biases too much, but to encourage them to find their own way. So I'm constantly, you know, my one son is really interested in skating and hockey right now. Um, mm. Maybe not quite as heavily as your son seems to be into football, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's so wonderful. Um, and it's great to see how involved you are, but I saw in your backyard there, you're on, um, is it a, a river or a, a canal? Well, it opens up to a preserve in the backyard and um, we have a bunch of bass in there and, and, and do some bass fishing, which is uh, nice. love to do as well. Yeah. Um, it's funny that I, I don't know if you listened, I had a, an Orthodox monk on uh, and we had a discussion um, on the, my podcast and before this, our discussion in Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. I did see some of that before the discussion, we had just a pre talk on the phone and just talking about generally what we're going to discuss and, I asked them about um, kids and I asked them about how do we uh, guide them or how do we help them in, in this world of hyper technology and screens and everything. And he's like, James, I don't have any kids. And I, 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 you know, he's like, I don't know if I can speak to that. Then he said something like just quickly that just stuck out to me. He says, you know, trust them. He said, trust them. And I'm like, Whoa, like, I don't know why that little thing uh, was so profound. Um, But it goes back to, you know, my, my uh, um, wife was really into the Bible and Christianity as a little girl and fell completely away. Uh-huh. Right. And there's these things like, and in, in Christianity, Jesus says, trust the babes, right. Uh, you know, trust the children. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, they have a, a certain innocence that I think is very similar to the innocence that, um, you know, Adam and Eve had before the fall, right. There's just complete immersion and and kind of awe of the world and this innocence and that's what we lose as we become adults mm-hmm. i think there's a correlation there with you know the fall into the world the knowledge of good and evil that the children don't have right yeah. once you fall into that world by coming of age going through puberty um you see the world in a different way and um you know so it's, it's interesting I, i'm trying to follow that you know listen to the babes and follow the children best I can. Yeah. You know, you're right. I, f- I find as the older, as we get older, our senses dull, right? Mm-hmm. Like all our senses and uh, children just have such a, such strong and wonderful connections to things, um, you know, to, to art, to perception, to awareness, to, um, to magic, to religion, to, to all these things that um, get, you know, learned out of us even um Mm -hmm. and and that's certainly i'm trying as much to to foster those things and to not um dull them to to delay what might be somewhat inevitable as Mm -hmm. as much as possible yeah that's one of the questions i have is is it inevitable does it have to be this traumatic event um you know and something you reminded me of, of what your dad said and i watched his uh media ecology um, video for the probably fourth time. Yeah. Uh, I actually love it. Yeah. You know, at the end when he says courage yeah. and he talks about to be, I forgot how he said it, to be truly progressive, you, ha- you have to be conservative, uh, to be truly radical. You have to be conservative. And he says to get at the root, yeah. right. Not conservative as political. Um, but he said something as education is what's left over after you forgot everything you learned, something yeah. like that. Einstein. I'm like, Oh man, that's uh 
that, that, that seems to resonate with this idea of, of, you know, of trust the children in a sense. What have, what's, what have your children taught you so far, James? Oh man, presence, um, uh, you know, appreciation, um, you know, uh, I think that'd be the, the, the most is, uh, appreciation and to be out of my head and, and into my heart, um, yeah. a lot more. Uh, and that's a problem with me cause I live, I tend to live in my head, obviously thinking about these types of ideas and having a philosophy background, mm-hmm. you kind of live in the eight inches between your ears. Uh, <laughs> so th- they've kind of helped me, you know, root into my heart and, uh, you know, I'm very appreciative of that. Here's, this might seem like an oddball question, which I've, I have not prepared you for in any way, but um, <laughs> I believe it was Frank Zappa who's, who asked, what is beyond love? Yeah. What do you think? Uh, is there something beyond love? Uh, yeah, I think um, beyond love, I think it would be, uh, you know, belonging, uh, togetherness, uh, I think love is uh, uh, the route back to uh, the other, you know, uh, there's no more other. Uh, and I don't know that there are terms to, uh, to that I, at least I'm aware of to express what that is. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you know, the kingdom of heaven. Very good. You mentioned a philosophy background. Mm-hmm. You studied it in school. Yeah, I did. I, I studied it. I went to the University of Florida here and I had, I had kind of a troubled uh, teenage years. Uh, I got okay. into a lot of different things. Um, and then I was going to community college here, having no clue what I was doing. I, I didn't make good grades in school. I just didn't, it didn't interest me. And then I got, I applied to, I got pretty good grades in community college. And then I applied to um, the University of Florida to get off of probation that I was on. <laughs> And it worked, uh, you know, the, the judge, the judge said, you know, don't go be partying like those gators up there. Um, and then I found myself at the university of Florida, which is a tough school. And I didn't know what I was doing, but, and then my first year there, I found political, um, what was it? Political theory class. And okay. I took it cause I signed up late and, and I didn't, that's the only thing that was available. <laughs> and, um, I, I get into that and I, we started, you know, reading Hobbes and Locke and, uh, that just completely turned me on where I changed my major to uh, philosophy and just took nothing but philosophy courses after that. It's just, wow. it's really strange how that happened. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I found it. And then existentialism, uh, and then kind of through the, through the canon there, the German idealists and, uh, this question of being is, is something that stands out. When I look back, I remember sitting in my room in a particular, uh, apartment that I was living in reading this book, uh, I forgot what it was called, but it was a book that was talking about Heidegger and Heidegger was talking about the question of, you know, philosophers question the good, the true, the beautiful, the just, but what is being? And I just remember reading that, you know, as a young, young kid. And I'm like, wow, what, what, you know, what does that mean? What do you mean? What is being? And, um, you know, cut to now, I still don't (laughs) know, but I'm still, you know, trying to engage with that idea. I think that's one of the questions, like, what is love? You can spend a life meditating on. I think it's a, I think that's the quest part of a question where there isn't necessarily a destination, but stops along the way. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it, tr- it truly is the, you know, the journey it's not uh-huh. to be cliche, 
Um, but it's like, we're probing into these, like, again, we're probing into these questions that we don't really have the tools to, or the, the spiritual maturity maybe to apprehend, right? So what we can do is just kind of probe, have discussions, read, reflect, um, and make progress, whatever that looks like as best we can. Um, yeah. I think these ideas like love and, and beauty, uh, are environments, you know, they're parts of environments that we're part of a little bit, but I think there's a whole, um, there's a whole dimension, higher dimension of these, you know, these concepts or these ways of, of thinking, being love, good, the good, the good, the true and the beautiful that we have a little bit of access to little breadcrumbs. Um, but we haven't, uh, unless you're a saint, you know, saints or a mystic, uh, you know, that, that that have explored these, these upper realms and have maybe come back to articulate them you know, better, uh, Meister Eckhart, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, you know, I think poetry is this probing love and probing being in a sense. So, mm-hmm. um, I, 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 you know, my soul is filled by probing these questions. So I just follow that. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, and I find poetry is, is one way of doing that as well. It's, a uh, one ship we can explore with. What do you have? Um, I'm interested in how you're you're exploring poetry. Are you are you doing anything very intentional with it, or or just writing and seeing what happens? Um, yeah, I'm just writing and and seeing what happens. Uh, you know, at work, if I have a little downtime, or something will just come to me, and I'll try to, you know, just write what um, I'm feeling in a sense, mm-hmm. and and try to you know, you know, make sense of what I'm writing. Uh, and, uh, a lot of, a lot of it's been, um, apocalyptic, but not necessarily war- like, uh, negative, like it's been apocalyptic in the sense of, uh, you know, there is a world is ending. There is a world, a way of being that is clearly ending, uh, or might have already ended. And it seems like we're in between, uh, and we're in this in between space of two worlds. Uh, and the, um, the kind of poetry seems to kind of reflect that. Uh, in, in, in a weird way. Um, you know, so it's, I have one here, I have one here, it's four lines. Um, it's from two thirty. So hurried frenzy, aimless masses, empty work, robot classes, <laughs> imperceptible imperfection, forced temporal vivisections. <laughs> so it's like, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just the ideas that I've been exploring, uh, are just coming, you know, I'm writing them in different ways. So I don't know, just again, uh, experimenting. Yeah, it's, it's great because it's at once a way of exploring and a way of expressing. Um, mm-hmm. That's very, it's unique. There's, um, it's not like anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Do you, do you read much poetry? No, I don't. And that's something I, I want to start doing more. Um, you know, I have a little bit in the past, but not really. Um, so any recommendations or um, that you could send would be great or share with me. Um, I definitely would love to. Well, there's so much out there. Um, when I when I explore, when I was looking into poetry, a great way is anthologies. Mm-hmm. Um, the Oxford Anthology or, you know, ag- again, with nonfiction, there, there are different schools. Poetry is different the world over. So um, it doesn't have to be all English 
poets from the last, you know, several centuries. There's all kinds of interesting things. There's a lot of, um, there's a whole poetry side to Instagram, mm -hmm. which um, I find most of it is actually uh, memes kind of masquerading as poetry. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway. Um, well, it's memes are very interesting. Uh, memes are something, they are like this concentrated meaning you know and a lot of them seem silly and a lot of them are silly, are silly but i think there is a poetry it's like a poetry a visual type poetry or something it, it's it's kind of hard to put your finger on um mm. but i don't think it's uh, i just had a conversation with uh jordan hall on, on one of my uh one of my episodes and i made this meme and i'm like hey i made this stupid meme and he kind of brought up this idea um so i i you know i'm interested to check that out too um but you know i, I hear what you're i hear what you're saying well, that's an interesting idea. The poetry of memes or the memes of poetry. Mm -hmm. There might be something worth following there. Maybe. I, I know myself um, in my poetry, I generally um, sit down and, and write a single thing. And that's that as somebody who reviewed my book that's coming out um, mentioned that it's a series of standalone poems. Hmm. And that got me thinking, Oh, I guess, I guess my poems are generally standalone poems. Uh, now, what if I, what if I tried to do something else? What would that look like? So I've been, I've been writing a series, and that's been uh, very interesting. It's uh, keeping a continuity between pieces of writing uh, mm -hmm. on a theme is a much, a much different thing. Does he, um, does it come to you easily? Would you say? It does because um, I've been doing it a long time. <laughs> yeah. I've been writing since as long as I can remember writing poetry. Hmm. Um, and I've taken breaks here and there. And for the last year, I've been getting more into it. Um, so it does come easily most times just because, you know, it's like, like driving. You know, you learn how to drive and it's second nature or mm -hmm. riding a bicycle, to add another cliche. You learn the mechanics of it and... Uh, uh, and that part's kind of second nature. And um, I mean, there's so many different ways to write poetry. You can write free verse or stream of consciousness, or, you know, you can be more intentional and rhyme and meter. Um, I've, I've never been much of a one for editing. I, mm -hmm. I prefer what comes off the top and to, to trust that and find the value there. But I've also found, um, you know, editing poetry is, is almost like a, a different, a different, it is a different form. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so much that can be um, done with that, um, especially in, in collaboration with other people. There's a, you know, T.S. Eliot wrote The Wasteland uh, and he, he handed it over to Ezra Pound um, mm. who edited it and it became a very different thing. There's actually a book I have it here in the library, the published manuscript and revisions between T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound on the wasteland. It's fascinating uh, to see two major poets going back and forth, uh, working on one piece. And it's very rare um, for another, for a poet to allow another poet that kind of control, you know? Yeah. So, very interesting. It's like, yeah. it's like being in relationship in a yeah. real, real way. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. I wonder, um, like you were asking me if, if I'm fluent in Greek and I, I kind of had a similar response 
to how you just express kind of poetry, right? It's a, mm -hmm. it's a faculty or it's a, a way of expressing that you, you know, build over time and then it becomes second nature. Then it kind of becomes automatic. You can lose some if you don't do it for a while, but when you pick it back up, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're kind of reapplying what you've, what you've uh, learned. Right. Have you, have you written anything in Greek? Uh, no, I haven't not. I've not well-versed in writing in Greek. I can write like, you know, grade school words and, and okay. a little bit high, a little bit more than that. But uh, no, I've been, I've been actually reading, I got a, an interlinear Bible, which is uh, it's got Hebrew, Greek, and English um, kind of all together. Oh. And so three sections, it's got the the Hebrew, the Greek, and the, the English. And I've been, you know, reading through it and looking at the difference. Obviously I know the Greek words and the difference in the meanings and the connotations uh, and it's very interesting. And it, it you know, um, like when you talk about in the beginning was the word, yeah. right? In the beginning, logos, right? In the beginning was the logos, right? So what is the logos? Very good. You know, what is the logos? And that I think that just opens up, you know, um, again, a, a space to explore. Yeah. And your 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 dad and your grandfather, you know, um, talk about the logos as something that. Uh, is was something that was uh, not lost during you know the the phonetic alphabet but it was um you know it was straight jacketed right like it was put into these mechanical terms right and went from this organic thing that encircled the, you know the world that you engaged and interacted with to this you know this rational you know way of of seeing the world uh, which is not wrong but incomplete i think something like well, that it has its advantages, uh, you know, rationality, reason, logic. Uh, and now we're back to talking about visual and acoustic space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. Well, it's so um, when we think of, you know, just I have a quick question, I guess, like technology, I had this kind of thought experiment of, um, you know, if <laughs> it's going to sound a little crazy, if an alien civilization were to invade earth, they, you know, they're obviously way more advanced in, in consciousness and, and in their tools. I don't think it would look like a, um, it wouldn't look like what we see on the TV as a big saucer comes, you know, physically down and, uh, you know, destroys a city or abducts a people. Um, it would be more like they would invade our, our imagination. Uh, you know, they'd have the psychic tools or the ability to invade our imagination. And let's say that this idea of the machine or this mechanical way of uh, 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 this uh, instrument, uh, uh, instrumental way that we see the world. Can you hear me still? Yeah, I've got you. Yeah. Um, yeah um, is, 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 is an effect of, uh, of us kind of being the sex organs of the machines, right? We're the sex organs of, of a higher alien civilization that is using us to build its body. By you know, by invading our imaginations through our dreams, through our art, uh, you know, I'm not saying that I believe this, but it's just a kind of a thought experiment. Um, and then it makes you look at, like right now, I have two screens ahead in front of me. I have my phone here, right? These are parts of the bodies of the machines that we're building. So it's like their eyes looking at us, and we're totally unaware. <laughs> and we're building more sophisticated, uh, you know, algorithmic instantiations of their body. Um, you know, through their, through the use of our consciousness. And it makes me think of the scientists as the, as the religious priests of the day that are summoning, you know, these 
uh, higher dimensional creatures or whatnot. Uh, and it, that's, again, makes me the idea of, of uh, media being the extensions of man, right? I mean, there is this yeah. biblical idea of there being, uh, you know, angels and demons, right? We, in our current mythology, they're aliens, or in, in terms of psychedelic phenomenology, we talk about DMT entities, right? But these seem to be all different ways of, of talking of the same thing. Uh, and then when you think the book of Enoch, which talks about how, you know, these fallen angels came and taught man how to, uh, you know, how to use tools, how to, you know, mine metal out of the ground and build sophisticated tools, but also build weapons of war, right? Uh, I think these ideas, exploring them without just uh, reducing them or considering them nonsense is, is a fruitful way to, to think and discuss, I think. Sure it is. It's very interesting. Where do our ideas come from? Mm -hmm. you know, do we pick yeah. them out of thin air or, or are they passed our way and, and we just, you know, pick up on them? Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Who knows? And it can be disturbing if you sit to think about it too long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, do, do people have ideas or do ideas have people? <laughs> right. Oh, exactly. What is the nature of where ideas come from the muse you know mm -hmm. yeah uh it, it, is it from outside the earth is it uh angels and demons is it our ancestors talking to us you know uh interesting questions yeah i think they're open for uh discussion uh i think if you look at so the fractal nature of being right it's it's you know it's bodies all the way up and down and we <laughs> Like if you you have a dog, right? And I have a dog. He's actually here, right, right here, uh, and he's aware that I'm here and that I'm talking. And he where he's aware when I'm in a bad mood or a good mood. He's aware when he's hungry, but he's not aware that I, you know, uh, that I have a 401k or you know that where I go to work or when I'm sitting here typing on my computer. He doesn't know that I'm sending an email, right? So it's like I have a level of consciousness that is higher than his, but his he has awareness of me, right? So just you know, fractal that up, you know, from our perspective up, right? So we might have these uh, intuit or dreams or these, these thoughts and ideas that we think of as ours, but they might be uh, in relationship to consciousness that are consciousnesses that are above ours. And I found it, I find it absurd to think that, that, that idea would be absurd, uh, that humans are the pinnacle uh, or the top of the hierarchy. And then it's just, uh, you know, everything below us and then nothing above us, you know? Right. Well, I, I think most people uh, realize that there's, there's a little more to it than that. Yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. You, you mentioned, you mentioned work though, James, uh, what is your work these days? What are you doing actually, with that philosophy degree? Well, not a lot of uh, resources to be extracted from a philosophy degree um, no? in terms of jobs as a philosopher. But uh, I actually work with, and um, I'm an administrator for a home care agency, and we take care of medically fragile children. Uh, we provide round-the-clock nursing for um, for kids that have a lot of them are newborns, uh, six months old, uh, but you know, uh, adolescents as well, and they have a chronic, a pretty tough illnesses. I mean, um, you know, from wow. late-stage cancer uh, to uh, you know, a lot of them are on ventilators. Uh, 24 seven in the home. And we provide nursing um, care 
to the kids that are on that have these kind of specific needs and it, meeting. And I meet with obviously you know the the patients and and the kiddos that we take care of, and yeah. they are amazing. That yeah. they are they are teachers. They are angels. The, the way that they uh, the way that they are handle a, a situation that we project on them. This is horrible. This is terrible. And it is for the parents and it is for the family. And to some extent it is for, for, for the child, but there's something mm-hmm. else going on there where they don't deserve our pity. Like it's, there's something special there. And the, the effects that they have on the lives of their nurses and us is pretty profound. Um, and again, it just, it changes the way that you automatically think of things such as death and disease, right? Which I'm, you know, obviously they're not good things, but there's something else there. Um, but yeah, that I, I do that and I, I enjoy it very much. You know, my wife's an ICU nurse here at one of the hospitals and my wife, I mean, my sister is a labor and delivery nurse. Uh, so I got a lot of nursing in my, in my family and what I do at work. And uh, I, I can, I love being around nurses. It's just, you know, they say that that's the one, not the one, but one of the jobs that automation can't replace. You can replace a doctor that does surgeries, but you can't replace care, you know? So it's mm-hmm. a good, it's a good, uh, I think, space to be in, in terms of uh, people considering uh, careers, if that's something that they're interested in. That's a, that's a very good point. Um, you can't synthesize care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing, but I think it is, it is a fact that we've yet to <laughs> come up with a, a caring algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that, um, you know, it's hard to synthesize, I think poetry, like, you know, as well, it's easy to do, you know, I think um, regular, you know, disposition, but actual real poetry is something that it expresses something deeply human that is, it might be able to replicate words in, in specific ways, but I don't think it will have the same effect as, um, as something like poetry does. And, and I, yeah, yeah, I think that's something that your uh, Marshall said, he, he's more uh, interested in the aphoristic style of writing because it's more, it, it gives the better ability to probe rather than, you know, continuous, prose. Uh, and what, made, what came up with me when you were, you know, you've wrote poetry in this kind of discontinuous way your entire life. And now you're reflecting on that and, and attempting to, you know, we, uh, weave a thread between your poems. And I think it speaks to this idea of, of we need to now, you know, we've defragmented, we've disintegrated, but that's not all bad. It's given us, science is important in what it's given us, but if we just turn the process around, Right, and use the knowledge and, and what we've you know attained uh, you know over you know X amount of years, right? And just push it back the other way, right? And kind of reintegrate what's been disintegrated with the higher levels of knowledge and maybe consciousness uh, that we've attained. Uh, it's 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 something that you know kind of came to me when you were telling me that. Yeah. Um just as we're we're closing up, James, I wonder you're you're involved with uh, industries that are involved with care and care of people. And that's so important right now, especially as we're a year plus into this global pandemic and people are more fragile than ever before. What do you think, what do you think we can do to, to take care of ourselves right now? 
Yeah, it's a great question that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and I think it's uh, act locally, like your local environment, uh, do whatever you can to affect those around you, your friend, your family, your friends, your neighbors, uh, the people that you work with, uh, care about them, uh, care about their lives and their well-being. Um, and then I think the broader idea there is to build community as best you can at, at, a, at a local level um, and build networks of communities. I think that's what's happening online, which is very interesting. But I think that's key and, and important uh, to um, you know, holding on and, and eventually building the new. Uh, so, you know, care, provide, you know, care about others. And that's why, you know, praying and, and praying earnestly does something to your heart that allows you to share more, more love with people. Like the love that you have for your kids is special, right? Share something like that with everybody. I think that's, that's what I'd say to that. That's, that's powerful and very helpful. James, it's been loving, lovely speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thanks so much, Andrew. Appreciate it. And good luck with the uh, project. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.